This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. It's another very newsy edition of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. You guys aren't getting any sleep, are you? I'm not doing much besides sleeping and working. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's just been an unbelievable barrage of news. There's so much to talk about. It's hard to decide what gets what gets left on the cutting room floor. And today is Thursday. Today's normally the day we have the news. So to prepare for that for tomorrow, let's get started today. Where will the auto show go? Where will the boat show go? Have we seen the last of the IX Indoor Amusement Park and its very annoying jingle? Why is the IX Center closing so abruptly? Laura Johnston, this came out of nowhere yesterday, at least for us, maybe not the City Hall. What's the story on the IX Center? Yeah, this is a weird developing story that kind of developed all day long. But you are right about that jingle. I remember it from middle school (laughs) and onward. I will not sing it on this podcast to spare people. But the 2.2 million square foot event center is actually owned by the city of Cleveland. It acquired it in a land swap with Brook Park in 1999. At the time, they thought they were going to expand the airport for another runway. They didn't need it. So they've been leasing it to the IX Center Corporation, which handled the day-to-day operations. It welcomed as many as 2 million visitors a year for, for big events. You know them, like the International Auto Show, the Great Big Harlem Garden Show, and that amusement park. But the IX Center says it's been decimated by the pandemic. They haven't had anything since a golf show in late February. And so they say they just can't do it anymore. They basically put out a press release around noon, maybe yesterday, and said, that's it. We're done. Susan Glazer did a great job chasing down the story, trying to figure out what it is, contacting all these different shows. And they all kind of have different versions. And the city didn't say anything till last night when they sent out their like coronavirus update number 200 and whatever. Uh, That's an exaggeration, but 100 and whatever. And they just said they're looking at options. Yeah, I have a feeling based on our long history of covering City Hall and knowing how it works that the operator had done work to try and make a deal with City Hall because the the business is so down, finally gave up getting satisfaction and just summarily closed. Because you're right, Susan Glazer talked to the show people who said the mayor has assured them that Uh this will go on, that... And, and they believe they'll find another operator. I have a hard time believing that. Who in their right mind would take over a center that is based on gigantic public gatherings when we really have no end in sight of COVID? I mean, maybe when we get if we had testing that you could guarantee people didn't have it or if we got the vaccine, you could get back to life the way it was. But for now, 
You can't open that place up. You can't have those kind of crowds. I just, I suspect there's a miscommunication. We're filing a records request with the city to get communication between them and the operator. You know, if it goes the way most public requests for the city, we'll see it somewhere around 2025. <laughs> well, but, but we will get to the bottom of this. I suspect there's a communication issue between the operator and City Hall. Uh, Mayor Jackson is having a news re- uh, press conference today. So Bob Higgs is going to ask about it, our City Hall reporter. But yes, while some show people said they've been working with the city for upwards of two years talking about this, I talked to the Lake Erie Marine Trades Association, which runs the boat show every year, which is a big deal in Cleveland in January. And this came as a total shock to them. They were hoping to have their show in January after they were saying that they're like a retail operation that they should be able to follow the same rules as a mall, which, I mean, there's some sense to that. If you can go shopping, why can't you go to a boat show? I mean, it's a shop of boats. So, Well, but but let me push back on that a little bit. I mean, the show, the success of the show is based on the number of people who come to it. True. Like the whole purpose of it is to pack people in. And that's anathema in this age of coronavirus. I, I'd be surprised if... Mike DeWine allowed a boat show to go on unless you put draconian crowd limits in and there were long lines outside in January waiting to get in. I'm not I'm not sure that 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 goes. The problem they have is, is that the downtown convention center doesn't have anywhere near the two point two million square feet that the IX center has. So if you bring those things downtown, they'll be much, much abbreviated. Uh, so I, it, it's, you know, this is. And they don't have it. that great Ferris wheel in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> Can I jump in here for a second? This is. Yeah, Jane, go ahead. All they have to do is make it either a political event or a religious event. You know, the, the, the Christian boat show, and then it'll be exempt from all the. Uh, <laughs> well, this well maybe. The Trump boat parade, like, come to the IX maybe. Center. Maybe that's what they'll be talking about. Well, hopefully we'll get some straight answers from City Hall today about whether there was communication leading up to this decision. Uh, Hopefully we'll also be able to talk to the operator here before too long. It's this week in the CLE. First, it was the FBI. Then it was the SEC. Now we have another agency opening a probe into First Energy, which is at the heart of a $60 million bribery and racketeering case that took out the former Ohio House Speaker, Jane Cahoon, who is the latest agency to start looking into First Energy business practices. Well, it's the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio, and they seem to be focused on First Energy's lobbying and campaign contributions, you know, to influence House Bill 6, the nuclear bailout law that's at the center of this uh, federal probe. So they put out this filing and they they are asking First Energy and its affiliates in Ohio to demonstrate that the costs of any political or charitable spending in support of House Bill 6 or on the effort to um, thwart a repeal of it were not included directly or indirectly in any rates or charges paid by ratepayers in Ohio. So that's well, what they're looking at. But the Consumers Council would really like them to to do more. Let me let me. <laughs> what, where else could the money have come from? I mean, what are the other revenue streams that would generate sixty million dollars for First Energy? <laughs> I mean, I it, it's kind of obvious this guy it's got to come out of the ratepayers. How are they going to this right? I'm a little bit 
I'm a little bit taken aback because, you know, the PUC and First Energy have had a very cozy relationship. There are a lot of people that believe the PUC operates at the behest of the utilities rather than the people it's supposed to represent. Did they get dragged kicking and screaming into this because they've been embarrassed by this whole scandal? Or or does it appear this is a legitimate review of what's gone on with First Energy? Well, I don't have any particular insight into that, but you know, my guess is they're, they're doing at least something to, you know, that they should do. As I said, the Consumers Council has noted that, you know, the legislature has given the PUCO broad powers to, to do a lot more. And, and so they're hoping that, um, you know, that they broaden this review, that, that they have all this power to investigate utilities and to protect the, the public. But, you know, they're calling it kind of like a first a first step. Well, regardless of what they do, we're continuing to dig. Andrew <laughs> Tobias has a bunch of stories lined up that'll be rolling out. You're on really the putting interview. the pressure on Andrew. <laughs> I am. This is public service journalism. A lot of people hoping to break this power that First Energy has had over legislators all the years as laid out in a very, very good story by John Conigli a couple weeks ago. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Will the Ohio State Buckeyes win a championship, or will they at least get the chance? Laura Johnston, big news for Big Ten football fans yesterday. Yeah, this was a reversal of a decision that they made in August, and they're going to get the chance to play, at least compete for a national championship. But you will not be able to watch them in person. No tickets are going to be sold to the public, and I don't think there's going to be any tailgating. So you're going to have to watch it on TV. The plan is for eight games in eight weeks, starting the weekend of October 24th with a championship game on December 19th. Schools are going to have to follow the precise rules to be able to play games, including testing daily for the coronavirus. That way, they'll be easier to keep a handle on the disease. And there's even a rating system, I believe, from yellow to red uh, based on the percentage of positive tests. So any every player, coach, athletic trainer, anyone who is on the field has to get the antigen test. And then there's also this threat of myocardial myocarditis. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's a heart condition correlated with the virus. So there's going to be extra precaution taken for players who do test positive um, to make sure they don't have any heart problems. Well, one, it would be nice if this color coding could be coordinated so that we'd (laughs) we'd have the same thing from yellow to purple like we do in Ohio. Uh, The second thing is the last time I checked, I, I don't think schedules were out yet. Maybe they're out by now. So we don't know whether the the very anticipated matchup of Ohio State and Michigan will take place on the traditional Thanksgiving weekend, do we? No, we don't know. There's so much we don't know. We don't know if some players are going to play. Cornerback Sean Wade might go to the draft. Same with Wyatt Davis. Because this decision came so late, people were already making plans, kind of assuming that the Big Ten wasn't going to play this fall. So um, I got to give a tip of the hat to Dave Campbell's team and Nathan Baird that were chasing this down all day. Doug Lake Maurice wrote about it too. Uh, what this meant, because this is a really big deal to Ohio. It's on our front page of the plane dealer today, because as you've said, it's, this is not just a sports story. Like people in Ohio care about Ohio state. They care about college football. And I think everybody's excited to have a, you know, something to look forward to this fall. They did come up with a wacky kind of playoff where uh, they will be on the, on the final day, 
the number one team in the East and the West divisions will play each other, but the number two, three, four, five, everybody will get to play their corresponding rank in the other division just to give an extra game. It'll be interesting to see if they move the Ohio State-Michigan game to the final game of the season where it normally is, or if they keep it on Thanksgiving. We'll be watching for that. I expect we will see it soon. You're listening. Are we, are, are we going to talk about the Trump, <laughs> the Trump tweet that he took credit for this too? Yeah, but it's not true. So <laughs> let's just move on. It's this week in the CLE. Why is President Donald Trump fighting against making voting easier in populous counties in Ohio? And why is Ohio's chief justice criticizing her own party in a related case? Jane Cahoon, this all comes down to a single issue, even though it's playing out in a couple of courts. And there was a lot of activity yesterday. So let's start with the federal lawsuit over the issue. And actually, let's start with the issue. Okay, the issue is whether... Ohio should allow multiple ballot drop boxes for people to return their absentee ballots and and applications in Ohio. Right now, Secretary of State Frank LaRose has limited it to one per county because he doesn't think he is authorized under the law to do any more than that. So as you said, there's been some head spinning action uh, on, on a couple of fronts, and you asked me to start with federal court. So that's where President Trump, who has made a lot of unfounded claims about election fraud. His campaign has gotten involved in this federal lawsuit, which was filed by groups like the NAACP and the League of Women Voters, and that seeks to allow more drop boxes. And the campaign filed documents in that case saying that multiple drop boxes in a county could exacerbate the risk of fraud and illegal ballot harvesting. So that's coming up for uh, a hearing on an injunction September 23rd. Uh, he, he is allowing, the judge is allowing the Trump campaign to intervene in that case. And of course, Secretary LaRose is involved in, in that case too. And even though he says he favors allowing uh, more drop boxes, you know, in general, he is fighting that case as well and saying these last minute court decisions on the election are going to create chaos. Even though he has been seeking his own last minute court decision on postage, which makes no sense. He's a hypocrite. (laughs) We should point out that everything that the president's campaign is saying in that lawsuit has no basis. In fact, there is no evidence of any of it. The fraud and the easier fraud. um, This is pretty much uh, an attempt to reduce the ease of of voting by the president's campaign, which is which is a, a striking uh, fact in America. Okay, so there's a separate state case in state court that that is rolling on that's had multiple developments this week. The first right. was when a Franklin County judge said, Frank LaRose, all your arguments against having more ballot boxes, drop-off boxes are bogus, um, but I'm not ordering you to have them yet. But then yesterday, Jane, what did he do? Well, it was funny because um, he, the judge said he assumed that Frank LaRose, because he says he does favor drop boxes, once he got the legal declaration that it was okay to go ahead with them, that he would lift his ban. But he didn't. He said he was keeping it in place. So this caused a bit of a standoff where the judge you know, demanded to know why. And then LaRose filed something else. And anyway, the judge just decided to go ahead and issue this injunction requiring him to lift his his ban. 
But but he stated immediately, right? He because stated, he said Ohio law compels him to stay it. When when a state agency files an appeal, he's compelled by Ohio law to put to put a stay on it. So we're we're back to kind of status quo again while while this gets argued. But uh, you you also mentioned the the chief justice here, and what happened is when the judge issued his declaration. Let's see. We're going back to Tuesday, saying that, you know, shooting down LaRose's arguments, the Ohio Republican Party came out with this blistering statement, basically accusing the judge, who was a Democrat, of colluding with the Ohio Democratic Party, which was uh, um, which filed this this case. And so Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor she came out with this stinging statement on Wednesday. She is a Republican criticizing the Ohio Republican Party for this attack. And, and she said that she, she condemned it as a blatant and unfounded attack on, on an independent judiciary, judiciary. And she said, contrary to the statements in this disgraceful, deceitful piece, judges don't decide cases based on partisanship. So She's a, you know, a big defender of the independent judiciary and, and this really, this really set her off and, and, uh, I haven't seen anything quite like that in a while. No, it was, it was blistering and good for her. Uh, I mean, a, a judge issues an opinion and is immediately slammed for being partisan. I do wonder though, um, and it'd be interesting to hear from both you and Laura Johnston on this. Are we to blame for that in the media in that? You know, for most of our lives, a judge issued an opinion. We were we reported what it was. And that was the story. People might say I'm disappointed that the judge ruled that way or I disagree with the judge. But but it was never partisan. But at some point along the way, whenever a ruling is issued, we started adding the qualifier of which president appointed them, which which injects politics into it. You know, if Obama appointed him, he's a Democratic stooge. And if if uh, Bush or Trump appoints them, they're Republican stooges. I just wonder if we have helped foster that kind of thinking by the way we report these cases. Because when I started out in journalism, we didn't do that. <laughs> well, I, I think that as much as we'd like to believe the judiciary is always independent and that judges rule strictly according to the law, I mean, how many decisions have we seen like on the U.S. Supreme Court or elsewhere where the judges appointed by Democrats, you know, lean one way and the judges appointed by Republicans lean the other way. So it's it's kind of hard to separate that out. I mean, I feel we have an obligation to, to tell who the judge is, you know, especially in a high profile case. I think this might go back to what Evan McDonald wrote about recently with everything being hyperpartisan in our society. And it is still weird to me that judges run as Democrats and, you know, Republicans, that they have a party. Well, that's but, only in the primary. And for the general okay. election, they don't carry those tags. But they still have a party and they, yeah, you know, and you'll they run see them on the slate cards that the party hands out. You know? Right. So, I mean, I, I understand what O'Connor is saying completely. But I think at this point, you know, the label is getting slapped on everything. Yeah, I know, but we do it. 
I mean, we, we do it all the time. We are, you know, often that we, we put that on there, which ascribes motive. You know, Ted Diet in our columnist is on editorial board writes from a conservative slant, increasingly so, uh, often criticizes things that, that he sees in the media, including with us for assigning a motive when we have no evidence of that motive. And th- this is kind of a case of that, right? I mean, we, by putting in that this is a Democratic judge, we're implying that that might be a reason for why the judge ruled that way. So I'm not, you know, I don't think it's surprising that then Republicans would come out and say, you know, yeah, he did this because he's a Democratic stooge. I mean, they, they, the way they wrote it was over the top and good for mm-hmm. O'Connor for stopping it. But I, I do think we should step back a, a little bit and accept that, you know, we might disagree with the decision, but the judge might be making it for reasons they believe rather than their political leanings. I mean, ju- you're talking about the Supreme Court where there's nine judges, Jane, but in most cases, the rulings we get are from a single judge. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I just I, 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 I think you're right. I think that this is something we should think about. Well, yeah, I think I, we should think about it, but I think it's it's naive to think that a judge is not going to be influenced by their own personal beliefs, that they're, they're just going to take some robotic approach to their rulings. Okay, I'm going to push back on that because I'm accused every morning of bringing my political beliefs <laughs> to everything we do at theplainmiller.com. And I am adamant that that's not true, that, that we do not. We, we base our, you know, I have a column going this week about why we played a story we did because we were accused of being political and I lay out how we made our decisions. So, so I mean, I would hope, you're our politics editor, Jane, I would hope that you're able to put aside your leanings and and do things fairly. And if we can do it, then surely a judge can do it. I mean, that's that's the oath they take is to base their decisions on the law. And I think the the exception should would be the the, the party rule. Anyway, it's a it, this is a much better discussion than I thought. it would be. <laughs> so thanks for uh, thanks for offering what you had to say. You're listening to this week in the CLE. The Browns have their home opener tonight. So how much are those 6,000 tickets selling for? Laura Johnston, a couple of weeks ago, we did a story that showed the prices were in the stratosphere because only 6,000 people can go. The prices have come down a lot, but they're still pretty high. Yeah. So I guess the tickets, at least yesterday, were starting at $170. That's still 27% higher than last year's opening against the Titans. And the reason for that might be just their opening game debacle against the Ravens. So uh, the average ticket price, though, is way higher than 170 It's up to $404. That's up 84% from a year ago. So the stadium normally holds 67,000 people and, you know, only 6,000 are allowed. So you have to, you have to really want to go. You know, it, with normally the, the first kind of weekday game of the season, if it's in the warm weather, you know, it's like a holiday in Cleveland, the, the tailgating lots fill up at noon and people have a high old time. The, the tailgating at the Muni lot has been banned completely. Mm-hmm. I wonder what we'll see today of people trying to celebrate this. Will they just stay home? Will they fill up the bars like they did Sunday and be dangerous and spread coronavirus? Uh, we're, we've got some people out looking around to see if there's some 
pop up tailgating in like shopping center parking lots that are abandoned or something. Uh, but I, I don't know what to expect. Yeah, I'm not sure either. We have Dave Pekowitz going out to shoot photos around town. Uh, he's going to go out this afternoon. Um, what some bar owners told our entertainment reporters last week were that they weren't expecting huge crowds for the actual game because they have to stop serving at 10 o'clock uh, due to coronavirus rules. So if people want to drink the entire game, they can't go to a bar. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see. And hopefully they'll have a better performance tonight than they did Sunday when they got shellacked. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How hard has the coronavirus hit Cuyahoga County's arts and cultural institutions? Jan Cahoon, the, the CAC, the people that manage the, the, the awards of the tax money that we have for arts organizations, sent us a report this week that was a jaw dropper. This is devastating. Right. Um, well, CAC stands for Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. And as you said, they distribute this cigarette tax money that supports the arts. Their data shows that from, from March to June, that's the first quarter, you know, in which the pandemic took hold, the 65 recipients of CAC support had to lay off, furlough, or reduce hours for 2,533 full and part-time employees and contractors. And that amounts to 30% of the more than 8,000 workers employed by those 65 organizations in 2019. So that's, that's pretty severe. And they're, they're saying that, you know, this, this could basically be the end of business for some, some of these organizations. I get, I guess the most vulnerable ones are the ones that are most dependent on ticket sales from performances. Yeah. When this is all over, the, the list of, of things that have been permanently damaged by the coronavirus. It's going to be extensive. This, this report, I just, when I saw it, it was my eyes popped out of my head. I mean, in a County that prides itself on its arts so much so that people voted to tax themselves to support it, to see that kind of hit is, uh, is pretty shocking. So, well, you know, we'll have to see once we start to come back, whether, some of these things can make it or whether they'll be gone permanently. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're all dealing with coronavirus stress, but is it making us grind our teeth? Now, Laura Johnston, I know I probably make you grind your teeth with some of the things I do, but I hadn't thought of the coronavirus as something that's going to wear our teeth down to nubs. What did we find out when we talked to area dentists? Well, I just I just put this together because I do grind my teeth and I've had a bite guard for night wearing for a couple of years, but I definitely didn't have that problem before I worked for you. So cause and effect, <laughs> not sure. But now my husband actually just got his first. So I'm going to blame that one on the coronavirus. So yeah, this is happening. It's happening all over the country where dentists are noticing that people are coming in with teeth grinding problems and that can cause enamel wear, headaches, cracked teeth, tooth decay, soreness, loss jaw, where your jaw's like clicking, um, tenderness in the gum, biting your cheek. And this is all because your body manifests stress in these really weird ways. And that using your muscles to push your teeth together and grinding away is, is this <laughs> your body's way of like letting off all of that stress that builds up in your muscles. Is part of this, do we think the fact that working out has become so challenging for a lot of people that used to do it in gyms? I mean, if, if people figured out a way to get back to exercising, 
might it reduce this? Should everybody get a Peloton bike like I have and just <laughs> push it? I was doing my jazzercise this morning in my in my basement. I'm the the wooing really really picks up my spirit. But um, I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to look into exercise and how it's changed. I mean, obviously people were buying bikes, they were buying uh, paddle boards to get outside. If that's you know, we had all this outdoor exercise. You saw everybody running and biking and being outdoors. Now, if people are going to be cooped up inside and they haven't found another way of exercising, maybe this teeth grinding is getting worse. But, you know, we've we've talked about it a lot of times on this podcast. We've written about it a lot. Just the way that the, the pandemic is affecting stress levels, like people's weight is going up. They're eating more junk food. There's this thing called the broken heart syndrome the clinic has seen, which is a dysfunction or failure in the heart muscle simply because of stress. So this is just one more thing to add to that list of how the pandemic is messing us up. Well, and I also wonder if it's the the working from home, you don't have the punctuation to your day that we had before, where where you'd be at the office at a certain time, you'd generally leave at a certain time, and you could segment your day. I have time in the morning or in the evening for my exercise, and I have things I do, whereas now you get up, your desk is right there, your computer's <laughs> right there, you start working, and you look up at the clock, and it's dark outside, and you work the whole day. And and it's a discipline thing for the work-at-home trend to try and figure out a way to relieve the stress. Anyway, a surprising ramification of the coronavirus. It's this week in the CLE. Lots of school districts that started the year remotely are talking about returning to the classroom. So what guidance are they getting from the Cuyahoga County Health Board? And really, is anybody going to listen to the Cuyahoga County Health Board at this point? <laughs> Jane Cahoon, what's going on? Oh, you're so mean. Um, so as as we've talked about before, the Board of Health ad- advised all districts in the county to begin the year remotely when when the county was in that red alert category on the state's coronavirus alert map. Uh, and, and that caused a lot of districts to, to pivot from their original plans and, and to come up with a plan to go all remote, at least, at least to start with. And then when the uh, county dropped out of that red zone to the orange level, the lower risk level, the, they kept that recommendation because counties were known to kind of hop back and forth between those risk levels. But we've now been orange since uh, August 20th. So uh, they did come out with this new guidance about reopening and they're, they're suggesting a return to hybrid learning when the county remains in that orange status for, for four weeks and test positivity is less than 5%. You know what's bogus about that, though, uh, and I and I know this because the teacher social sites have been talking about it. The original advice on this didn't recommend strongly hybrid. It basically gave schools from the state and elsewhere guidance on what to do. And so some schools plant hybrid. Some schools plan to go back. Some schools plan to allow kids to choose. So for the county co- to come out now and say, we're recommending hybrid. Well, a whole bunch of districts never planned for that. And they had plans for the return to school that were fully formed before the recommendation came out to stay home. And so they, they're ready to activate those plans. And now the health board comes out and says, well, we want you to have hybrid. Well, they're not going to listen because they never planned <laughs> yeah. for that. And, and you can understand their frustration because they're sitting back on, 
what are you talking about? We've been following instructions and guidance from the state and from you guys all along. And now you just make up something completely new with the 11th hour. So, you know, I think it harms their credibility. If if there's any credibility left with these people to harm, I don't know. They're so secretive. It's hard to understand. I mean, they okay. are calling it guidance, you know, not an not an order. But anyway, sorry, Laura, go ahead. I was just going to say that I, I actually looked on my calendar on my desk and counted back four weeks. And today is four weeks. So if we stay in orange, <laughs> that's the official recommendation. And then, yeah, if we go down to yellow, then there could be all of the kids going back. Yeah, they said if we shift to yellow status for four weeks and we have a positivity rate of less than 3%, then most students could return to their buildings. And we're close I, to that. I think we were at 3.4 percent. Yeah, Rich Exter, Yeah, he's he's been kind of saying we're we're flirting with that. So we'll we'll get a new map. Today. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I I do think most districts want to be responsive to to the residents, and there are still residents that don't want their kids going back to school. I mean, we the, there's a study out of Utah daycare centers that showed that a whole bunch of people got the coronavirus from the kids. The kids didn't get that sick, but everybody they bumped into did. And there are people that still fear that. And I think districts are trying to accommodate both. I just wonder about the different quality of education. If half the kids or two thirds of the kids are in school where they're getting superior education, how much does that hurt the kids that are behind? I mean, it's the the online education is better in the fall than it was in the spring, but it's, it's not the quality of in the classroom. <laughs> But actually, they're getting a full day, at least with my kids, they're going to be they get a full day online. If they go back to school, they're going to get a half day because they're staggering kids in the morning and kids in the afternoon. Oh, well, that's another that's an interesting factor. I wonder what that does to education. Anyway, we'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, we've proven we don't need Chris to go along. So Chris will not we be back. We did it. We'll be back next week. But uh, but it's not on him that uh, we crossed the 30-minute line. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We will return Friday to wrap up the week's news. <laughs>